Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, Kami Akavan of Procon.org, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting critical thinking, education, and informed citizenship by presenting controversial issues in a straightforward, nonpartisan fashion. I know it sounds very exciting when you put it that way, and yet I have, uh, I've really been looking forward to speaking to you. Kami, thank you very much for coming by. My great pleasure. Thanks, Mike. So I think the first people, we have so much information news-wise nowadays. I think the easiest thing to do and what many of us do without even maybe realizing it is when we get a new source of information, we go, how can I immediately discredit this? Because I've already got so many other things to consider. It would just be great if I could say, oh, I don't have to listen to that. So is it true that you are secretly funded by the Koch brothers or George Soros or the Illuminati or anything like that? No comment. Uh, the, the reality is uh, what you said, I think, resonates so true. Uh, we all do it. The way that we filter is by just self-selecting media. So when you go home, do you turn on Fox News or do you turn on MSNBC or do you turn on CNN? And we use that as the filter. We just want to get information that reflects back our own values, our own ideologies. It just makes the world so much easier that way. It feels good. You get dopamine rushing through your brain when you get your own opinions validated. Is that, is that a literal truth? The dopamine part is a literal truth, right? It feels good. There's a reason for it. There's a biological reason for why people are self-selecting information that confirms their own biases. This is a field that has been studied extensively. Uh, it's a field that has been studied in psychology. It's been studied in business. Advertisers know these tricks and tactics very, very well. It's a form of uh, human manipulation. Uh, we are designed to want to have our own views validated. That feels good, and it makes the world a lot simpler place to live in. The consequence of that, of course, is when we're talking about politics, that means that whatever half-cocked opinion you may have developed <laughs> from 10th grade about the way minimum wage works, well, you pretty much get that for the rest of your life unless one day you decide, you know what? Maybe I got that all wrong. Uh, and it's hard for people. They don't want to say oh, I'm totally wrong on this point. I take it all back and let me see what the other side is about. Uh, and that's what we try to force people to do at ProCon. Uh, people don't want to feel like they're making poor decisions. They don't want to feel like they're dummies. They want to feel like they're making smart decisions and that they understand what's happening in the world. And, and that's powerful. But how do we get people to actually do that? How do we get them to look at both sides of these very difficult issues when their biology and their predisposition says, I don't want to do that? What we do is make it very, very easy for people to do what their the higher order of their brain, the higher self, the good part of their their mentality that says their better re- selves. Their better selves. How do we appeal to their better selves? And we try to make it easy by presenting the best pro and con research in a side-by-side format. It's not our idea. It's Ben Franklin's idea. He called it moral algebra. 
It was a way to bring science to issues. The thinking being, when you're trying to decide how to drive to work, you will apply this great reasoning to the decision. Do I want to go up La Cienega, turn right? Oh, there's construction. Maybe I'll take the freeway. Maybe there's a lot of consideration going on. Same when you're deciding what melon to buy. Let me thump it, listen to it, smell it, feel it, look at it, and all these considerations. Then when it's, what do I think about minimum wage? Should it be increased to $15? Suddenly, a lot of this reasoning just goes away, and this more emotional thing comes up and says, no way, $15, that's way too high. It's going to ruin business. Well, yeah, well, what happened to this complex reasoning that was going on for all these other decisions? Yeah. It goes away on issues. Uh, emotion comes into it and it's really tricky. So we have to make this, apply this moral algebra, this more scientific, higher order, better self thinking to stuff that really matters. And that's what ProCon is all about. We have spent thousands of hours researching these issues and then presenting the information in side-by-side format so people can just look at both sides in minutes and decide for themselves, okay, that's what this minimum wage debate's all about. I get it. I now believe X, whatever that conclusion is. We don't care what the conclusion is. That's on you, uh, reader. We just want to make sure people are informed. That's how our government was designed. It was built to last because we were going to have an informed citizenry generationally powering our democracy. Is that necessarily true? Because the one thing I sort of cling to, and it's amazing, we live in a time where you go, oh, things are the worst they've been in 20 years or my lifetime. And now people who feel that the country's headed in the wrong direction are grasping more at uh, Andrew Jackson or the Civil War. or We have to go back pretty far to find uh, comparable times for a lot of the insanity that's been going on. I'm led to believe, however, that in the time of the Founding Fathers, newspapers were exactly the same as the cable networks are nowadays, perhaps even worse, where they would literally be if it was, I don't even know who was against who, but if you were a Thomas Jefferson newspaper, you're literally saying the other guy is a murderer. You're just making up lies, but people who support him are reading it and swallowing it whole, and the other side is doing the exact same thing. So, good news, this is not unprecedented. Bad news, it hasn't happened in several hundred years, and I think we all thought we'd made a bit of progress. It's an awesome point. Uh, there was candidates from the colonial era saying, my opponent eats babies. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, we wouldn't say that now. Now, Fox <laughs> News, I'll say that for Fox News. They would absolutely never say that. And I, I'm pretty sure CNN would not say that about Donald Trump either. It's so disappointing to me as somebody, I have opinions, of course, of course I do. I'm a, I'm a left-leaning person, but I'm a reasonable person above all. CNN, it really disappoints me because I, I remember reading a thing one time that their numbers always used to spike. And this may still be the case when something really big happened. I think it was something they established with the Gulf War where their their numbers were really low. Nobody cared about CNN. But when something, a World Trade Center kind of thing that people felt like was important and they really wanted information, CNN would spike. That was just, it got in people's heads as like the trusted news organization. And with Fox News being what Fox News is and with MSNBC having established itself, um, you know, as, as the equivalent on the left side, This leaves this humongous middle ground for CNN to try to do, to the extent that it's humanly possible, a fair, unbiased job of presenting the news. And the fact that they have not done that leads me to believe that they know that there is no money to be made there, which leads me to believe that what you are doing at ProCon.org is a very noble thing to do, but it just may be impossible to make anything other than a very small sliver of the population care. Uh, I agree with you on one one, point. 
main point that you brought up, which is it is very difficult to make neutrality, active neutrality. Let's be in the middle and let's uh, stand above all of the partisanship. It's very difficult to make that saleable. And yet Macron did it in France. Arguably. Arguably, yes. Now, where I think a little bit differently is that People still want that. There's a reason that they turn to CNN and that motivation to say, I want to be informed. I don't want to be exposed to propaganda. I want to feel like I'm making an informed decision here. So there's a desire for this, but there's not necessarily a commercial basis for supporting it, which is part of why we're a 501c3 nonprofit public charity. Our business model is basically politely begging for money from foundations and our supporters. People, when they think about it, recognize that, boy, how is our democracy going to function if our media is not giving us straight information, if our educational institutions are not delivering on that promise? And the country is at such a stalemate and our federal level is gridlocked with hyperpartisanship. Our state politics are affected that way. Our local municipalities, where it didn't really matter if your mayor was a Democrat or Republican or your city councilman or the head of the water district, that stuff matters more and more now. Your party matters more and more now. And it's getting to the point where not only do we feel it in our government, we feel it at our dinner tables, right? How many Thanksgivings have you gone to where someone just got offended because racist Uncle Hal said something awful and they run into the room and slam the door and they cry and there goes Thanksgiving. It's personal now. Uh, and you talked about how it's unprecedented. It It's true that our level of partisanship today is extremely high and we haven't seen it in a long time, but we are comparing, like you said, to civil war era, the Mm -hmm. level of partisanship at the federal legislative level is as high today as it was in 1870. That's civil war, right? Uh, When you look at the number of Senate and congressional races in the United States, we have 535 seats. How many of those seats do you consider competitive where you don't know who's going to win because of gerrymandering and predictable voter behaviors? How many competitive seats? When we looked into it, we're talking about 25 out of 535. So it's about 5% of our federal elections is where the magic of democracy is happening. So if you if uh, for people who aren't familiar with the issue of gerrymandering and the implications of it, if all we're sending to Washington are people who only have to represent constituents who are hard left or hard right, what do you expect to happen when they get there? They ring the bell for their side to score easy brownie points back home. But you can't get it. You can't get a productive dialogue because none of them will be rewarded when they uh, run for reelection for having reached out to the, the other side of the aisle. Exactly right. That's right. So partisanship brings this sort of entrenchment. And when you look at polls, people have a very low opinion of Congress and they have a very high opinion of their individual Congress person. Interesting. Yeah. And so. Wow. I didn't know that. I knew the first part, obviously. There's a there's a big gap there. There's what people expect our elected officials to do. And then there's what they're actually doing. And when we look at near record low levels of legislation that's emerging from our uh, federal Uh, legislative bodies. We think, what's going on over there? You know, they used to have barbecues and picnics together. They used to spend a lot more time in D.C. being friendly with one another, knowing each other's families. Now they're spending at least 40 percent of their time fundraising. uh, And it's it's a different kind of ballgame. So it's far easier to be partisan in today's world. But the need for us to emerge from that and change the narrative and say we need our democracy to flourish. I mean, how many of our listeners are 
worried about the state of our country and what is happening, not necessarily because of who is in office, but because of record low levels of civic engagement. I mean, if we break 15% voting rate in a local election, those local officials are high-fiving each other. That's a high turnout. If we break 40% in, mm-hmm. a, in a presidential race, wow, with democracy in action, right? And this is of registered voters. That's about half the population, and about half of them are voting. So really, we're talking about a small percentage of of our country where this magic of democracy is happening. I and get that because there's the little signs in front front yards all across Los Angeles right now and in the Culver City area down about where I live. And I'll be damned if I vote for any of those people. So I'm, I'm definitely a part of the problem as well. Well, we all are. It's just very difficult. So let's say you wanted to vote for your local city council person. How the heck do you have time in your life to figure out all the candidates, where they stand on the issues, and try to make an informed decision? Yeah. A lot of people will, they see a candidate and think, I like the way that person looks, mm-hmm. or, and or they will look at the little title underneath their name. Oh, so-and-so, banker. Oh, I trust bankers. I'm going to vote for that guy. Or I distrust. Or I right. distrust. Right. And it comes down to that. So. In or, it's very difficult. To, we're all part of this problem because it's very difficult to access information. So again, I think what Procon is doing is we're trying to make it easy. We want to take the pain out of that process. People want to make informed decisions. They mm-hmm. don't want to sit on the sidelines, right? So how do we make it easy? Well, we invest thousands of hours of our time digging into issues, presenting pros and cons, so that way you can spend a few minutes trying to figure out where you stand on it. And and we've done that for 55 different issues over the last 13 years. We've reached about 160 million people since we started doing this, and we're not going to stop. There's an, uh, an appetite for this. There's a need for this. There's a civic mission to make sure that this grows and flourishes because uh, I, I worry about the world that exists where people are not informed citizens. Well, I am fairly certain that people who listen to this show are, as I think I mentioned to you the first time I spoke to you on the phone, just one day out of frustration, I took a Twitter poll and at least people who followed me on Twitter, something like 75 or 80 percent indicated that they did not consider um, any one party smarter, more effective, better at governing than the other one, less corrupt, what have you. So I'm sure everybody listening to this has uh, strong political convictions, but above all, I think they actually are reasonable people and open minded people. And that's why I, I know I am thirsty for this sort of information and I am just Praying to God that people who listen to this show are as well. So let's get into some of these. It's hard before we get into them real quick because, like you said, there's the the Thanksgiving dinner where you have racist Uncle Hal, but you also have these really codified, um, ossified orthodoxies on both sides. And both sides have really painted themselves into horrible corners where it is not possible to admit that you are wrong and admit defeat. I was thinking about, while I was going through your website last night, what if the New Yorker did a bunch of homework on their own and said, oh my God, climate change all along had nothing to do with man. We have the absolute evidence. We were dead wrong. They are. They have been dead right the entire time. Is the New Yorker going to put that on the cover? Are they really going to run with that? Is that really what they would choose to do? I mean, something even more outrageous if the, um, here's the problem with transsexual rights. Is the New Yorker going to run that story? I don't think so, because I know from experience of being someone who tries to be open-minded, when I talk to my friends, who I agree with 100%, we have the exact same beliefs on everything. Anytime I go, well, actually, the thing about the border wall is it's, I mean, yeah, it's a bunch of assholes that want it, but there's not really a great argument against it. Forget it. People go to the bathroom crying to get away from me. When I agree with them, 
So it is very, very difficult because there's these orthodoxies and I, I, I don't know how people could feel free in their social and voting circles to change their minds if they even wanted to. That's kind of what we're up against. That having been said, let's get into some of these things. Fair enough. And, and, and great points all around. And to that point, you know, we, we found how do people change their minds on issues? Mm -hmm. You know, they develop these political identities that become harder and harder and harder to, to change uh, over the course of their lives. So by the time they're 50, forget about it. Right. So where do you find that flexibility and humility to say, boy, I had it wrong. It's harder to do. So a lot of our focus is on uh, younger folks. Right. Teach this, uh, aspect of critical thinking, how to weigh and deliberate different opinions, how to admit when you're wrong, uh, or at least say, you know what, I disagree with you, but you made some really strong points, you know, good for you. You know, I'm, I happen to be over here. You happen to be over there, but Hey, let's go have a beer. Right. And we're both intelligent people and we both have our reasons for, uh, defensible reasons for arriving at what we arrived at. And, and also I think something that can let people, um, I don't want to say eat crow, but admit ambiguity is if you just realize what a goddamn huge country this is. And I, I think sometimes of the, um, you know, the the blind man looking at the elephant and the one guy thinks it's a snake and the one guy thinks it's a wall or what have you, because they're all touching different parts of the same thing. It should not be surprising that I have a different experience of what, say, um, illegal immigration means living in Los Angeles than someone might in a completely different part of the country. You can be right and I can be right, too, because that's true where you live in this. is, and, and don't be outraged. You know, it goes both ways that I have a different experience here in Los Angeles because we're people, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> we say there's two circles and they all they overlap. Yeah. And the majority of people in this country, they want to be in that middle area. They want to say, like, I take this input. I take that input. I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, and what we are seeing reflected back on us in our in our media and our social feeds on on our uh, Facebook and Instagram accounts are are the more polarized opinions. So it doesn't necessarily reflect what's in our in our hearts, and that's why it's so important where people in in the silence and not in their conversations, but when no one's looking, they go online, they look at pros and cons of issues. I can't tell mm-hmm. you how many times people have turned to the site because they can't have conversations with their peers and their family members and their coworkers about about these difficult issues, and they want to. Uh, and it is, I mean, really just a tailor-made um, asset to, if anybody's listening with like high school age kids, it's it's just perfect for that. It's almost too easy. I see you address on the website. Your kid could kind of just crib an entire paper from your website, but that's not your problem. That's their teacher's problem. So let's just go through some of the, let's solve every single problem that America has in, in, a, in a half hour. Uh, starting with immigration. And I guess you have to narrow that down a little bit. So the first half that I wanted to focus on is the border wall. Because when it was Pat Buchanan's thing, I'm a contrarian, you know, that's just who I am. And and when it was Pat Buchanan's thing, I, it ruined his career. And I was like, okay, but I know it's it sounds terrible. It sounds really, 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 really gross. And everybody, almost 90% of the people who back it are pretty gross too, but my grandfather came to America through Ellis Island, and I'm pretty sure if Ireland had had a natural land border with America, we would have built a wall during the potato famine. So we've always sort of controlled immigration, and if we cannot control immigration, then what's so bad about a border wall? So what are the pros and cons as you see it or as you've seen it through your research? The Pros and cons of the border wall, so many facets to this. Of course. One of them is is a moral argument. 
and whether or not the U.S. should have porous borders or whether the U.S. should have hard borders. The definition of a nation, some argue, is it's a distinct geography that has borders. And if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have a nation. So part of it is the, is the thinking that we are a nation, we have rules, we have laws. If you want to immigrate here, great. Get in line like everybody else and wait your turn and we'll consider you for immigration. That's the route my family took. I'm a, a naturalized U.S. citizen. Then there is other folks who say that there's a law of supply and demand that feeds the U.S. economy. And if there is a demand for certain kinds of employment and labor, then let's let people who can fulfill those roles come here, do the work. If the work's not here, those people go away. And this is a supply-demand type of, of economy. We find that happening to some degree, right? Because we look at certain industries like our construction industry in the United States, which has an incredibly high percentage of people who are undocumented working in that industry. Is it's, that so? It's a skilled labor. We have, look at what's happening in our educational system. We have this drive towards people getting bachelor's degrees. What about our trade skills? Those types of programs are going away, going away, going away. Auto shop in high schools, right? Metal shop, these kinds of programs. We're not teaching that to folks. So those kinds of jobs, tile workers, roofers, pipe fitters, those types of jobs are being filled by labor that's coming into the country to meet the demand. There's a lot of great jobs in this country for those kinds of skilled labor. And, and real quick, and I'm led to believe, I don't know, I'm led to believe that the vast majority of young people, college-age people who were born in America aren't very interested in going into that anyway. So it's not that they're begging to become pipe fitters but can't get the training. That's part of it. The other part of it is just the the cultural push towards bachelor degrees. Right. And I can't tell you how many teachers we've talked to that said, look, some of these kids, they shouldn't be in college, but they're very talented in doing other things. And they're very talented with art, with cars, they're very talented with metal, very talented with woodworking. So let them do those things. So part of it is to go back to the, uh, the border wall and, and the U.S. economy. It's a matter of what jobs are there in this country that we are not either not doing by choice or we're not doing because we don't have enough of that type of labor that is being filled by folks who are coming in here without waiting in line like they're supposed to, to come and fulfill those roles. So that's a factor. Another factor is the people who are coming here, they want what we all want. They want a better life for themselves and a better life for their kids. And people will go to great lengths to make things better for themselves and better for their families. So on the one hand, can't really fault their personal motivations for wanting to do right by by their families. Uh, but yeah, sure, they didn't observe the rules. They did not. And some of those folks who come here come here with bad intentions. And that's a big problem. So part of the border wall argument is, look, we need to have, we need to focus on our process. If we are not able to process enough people through our legal system, then let's change our legal system. Let's make it easier. Let's put more people in those roles. Let's reduce the amount of legal immigration that we are allowed to have or increase the amount of legal or speed up whatever it is, mm -hmm. improve that process. So somehow take away the uh, the incentive. Also, when you look in, back in our history, the U.S. used to have what we call the Bracero program, right? But this was back from, we had it for about 40, 50 years where we had a work permit situation where workers would come to our country from Mexico. They would work seasonally as uh, these industry jobs demanded when those roles were over, they would go back to their home country. And it worked out great for the Mexican folks who were in the Bracero program, and it worked out great for the U.S. industries that needed their labor. The Bracero program went away in the 60s. Since then, we really haven't had any major efforts at a 
federal level to be able to bring in outside labor to come and, and work in the United States. George W. Bush proposed it, didn't really go anywhere. People who talk about comprehensive immigration reform, they sometimes mean that, some type of work program, uh, worker uh, permit situation. But it hasn't got traction because these sides can't talk to each other. They can't agree on a damn thing, much less be able to make progress on some vital issues. Something so, comprehensive and hot button. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so the border wall, meanwhile, and look where we're at. We're talking about building up maybe a two-mile stretch, three-mile stretch, 10-mile, 15-mile at the high end for the the uh, Trump version of the wall. This really tall, thick, impenetrable mountain of a wall mm-hmm. that no ladder will be, uh, no, you can't build a ladder tall enough. You can't build a tunnel deep enough to penetrate this wall. Right? Game of Thrones. This right. is what we're talking about. He watched Game of Thrones. And yet that, it could it be built for the entire length of the U.S. border with Mexico? It's a phenomenally long border. Uh, and to be able <laughs> All to— All terrain. Right? Yeah. You know, and cutting off migration patterns for different kinds of animals, up right. and down mountains, across rivers. You know, this is—it's a logistical horror to think about what it was going to take to, to do this. So they said, well, you know, wall for part of it, but then a fence for part of it. And what about electronic surveillance for part of it? I mean, look, part of it is going through tribal territory, and those nations are sovereign nations. So can the federal government say, nope, we're going to cut through your tribal? It gets complicated. Is, are there are there tribal lands that are on both sides of the border simultaneously? Correct. Oh, I didn't yes. even know that. Yeah, that's a problem. It's There's a, a lot going on there. So I understand the motivation for the wall, for sure. Distinct nation, mm-hmm. protect its borders, right. keep the bad guys out, and everybody follow the rules. That makes a lot of sense. Then the other... Flip side of it is it makes a lot of sense to understand that people are coming here to fulfill jobs that are are open, that are that we need, that industry is demanding, and that the supply just isn't there in our U.S. labor force. So what are those companies to do? They pay more and bring in more people to do those kinds of jobs. A lot of people would love for that to happen. Uh, or they just look the other way whenever folks are coming in saying, I'll take that job. And they don't check their immigration status. We have programs down in the U.S. that are becoming more popular to force employers to check for immigration status. And those kinds of programs, the E-Verify program, uh, I think is as it becomes more and more popular, it may create an incentive for employers to do those kinds of checks and hopefully correct our system in a way to where wages will increase. The incentive will be for U.S. workers to go and, and get the kind of training and education to do those kinds of jobs. And everybody would be happy in that scenario. Problem is, though, what do you do with the 11 to 12 million people who are here right now who are yeah. undocumented? Which leads us to to dream. And you can't talk about one. If you if you think you can talk about one without the other, then you don't know what you're really talking about. So let's talk. Let's fold dream into this as well. What are the pros and cons of that? The dream act, I think, comes down to an economic argument and a moral argument. So the economic argument being that uh, dreamers came here by no choice of their own. They're just here. Their parents brought them here. They were raised native English speakers predominantly. They are predominantly people who are gainfully employed or students. Uh, They're not a criminal problem to the United States. Uh, And this is the only country they know. And for those approximate 700,000 people in the country with that status, then what is it that is proper to do with them? Do we send them out of here saying, look, your parents broke the law. Don't don't cry to the government. Cry to your parents. They're the ones who, who broke the law to bring you here. We can't reward right? lawbreakers. We can't, we can't right? reward lawbreakers. That's one of our, our arguments saying it's 
that's just the law, you know? And, and the other argument is the, if the dreamers who are here that are productive and contributing to the economy to the tune of billions of, of dollars, which is what left-leaning think tanks will, will argue that hundreds of millions of billions of dollars are being generated by this workforce that is motivated, talented, educated, then what happens if we do force them out of the country? We take an economic hit. That is against our self-interest. Why would we do that? Uh, so the counter-argument is, well, all those people that are here that are not documented, they are also using social services to the to uh, the tune of costing us more money than they may be generating. That's an argument. I'm not saying it's true, but I'm saying that's an argument that they take more money than they can generate in terms of tax revenue. Have you evaluated that claim, your organization? Uh, we have listed pros and cons of that. Is illegal immigration a net benefit to the U.S. economy? And interviewed countless economists and think tanks and various organizations. So you can read the research for yourself and come to your own conclusion. I'll just say that it is a debate about whether or not... There's no broad consensus on the real answer to that. There is among subsets of people. So if you talk to economists... They are roundly in the illegal immigration is a net benefit to the U.S. economy. If you talk to people who are in right-leaning think tanks, different story, right? They will talk about, well, the studies aren't done properly, that you really have to look at the methodologies of the studies that were done, and that if you factor in all the use of our healthcare system and all of the income tax revenue that's not being generated and how many undocumented immigrants are not applying for their version of a social security number. It's called an ITIN number. How many are not getting that and underpaying in taxes and not getting driver's licenses and causing accidents and and fleeing the scenes and not paying insurance. All that stuff, they argue that, look, it's a, it's a net loss for this country. And so that if the dreamers uh, go away or forced out, then that's okay, that there will be a, a it will not have a, a net economic harm to the country. So th- there's economic arguments on both sides of that, but as mentioned, there's also a moral argument. The moral argument being that look, those, these are kids. They came here through no choice of their own. They're here. They're productive. Let them just stay here. This is, this is their home country, and we are the nation of immigrants, and therefore we should embrace them. And that's the popular point of view. We have over 80% of the U.S. public is supporting the dreamers being able to yes. stay in this country. Right. Uh, the moral argument then goes the other way, saying, hey, they're lawbreakers, and this is a nation of laws, this is a nation of rules, and if you don't play by the rules, then get out. You know? It seems to me that there is a framework. If you look at uh, the numbers of the percentage of Americans who support the different elements of this, it seems like there's absolutely a framework for a comprehensive overhaul of immigration, which is the vast majority of Americans say, dreamers, you're just here. You guys are grandfathered. No, it isn't right. But you know what? Life life is messy. But it needs to stop with you. So let's pull you guys out of the shadows. And I love there's something in the cons of the Dream Act of uh, the the uh, esteemed rep Steve King saying you came here to live in the shadows. We're not saying you can't still live in the shadows. That's a that's a terrific <laughs> rhetorical flourish. Uh, that's really big of you, Steve. But you it does seem like there ought to be a way to make the best of the current situation. It's not an insane thing to say America ought to know who's in America. It's not an insane thing to say America ought to be able to get rid of uh, of, of violent criminals who are here illegally. There, again, broad, overwhelming consensus for that point as well. Any right-thinking person realizes that as well. Doesn't it just seem like we ought to be able to say, 
we'll do what we what needs to be done practically with where we are now and then because we all kind of agree on where we want to be moving forward which is we want to encourage immigration for people who are going to come here and be in the system and uh and produce and do and do jobs like we all agree on that and then it seems okay the wall okay, build 15 feet of your wall, do whatever you want to do. The wall's not going to work anyway, and it's going to cost lots of money. But as far as I can tell, the government wastes money left and right, hundreds of billion dollars on lots of things that don't work. So it doesn't really, beyond what it is symbolically, the wall kind of doesn't matter. It's just a rallying cry for a certain kind of voter of a certain age, I guess. You brought up so many good points, Mike, from the, you're saying, look, if you look on the left, you look on the right, they both have some good ideas, some good uh, motivations behind their thinking so why not embrace the common ground between those two sides which there's a ton of why don't you run for office man i mean those are it's a really good point right and yet our congress is not able to do that they look at it in terms of such hard lines of, uh, it, because they are have become so partisan so for for instance uh 1986 ronald reagan right the great republican probably one of the greatest republican presidents we've ever had at least in terms of his uh Fan base, his support. People love Ronald Reagan. He's a Rushmore candidate. You know, right. And he gave an amnesty in 1986. And people, and he thought, I'm going to give an amnesty, allow mm-hmm. the people who are here illegally now, they can stay, but never again, right? And look what happened after the amnesty. Our population of illegal immigrants continued to climb and climb and climb and climb. And now it's because he encouraged them. That was the Gipper's mistake. Well, that's the that's argument. That's how the argument goes. Right. That's how the argument goes. So it's a by. Doing that again, we're just going to increase the magnet effect and say, look, it's okay to break laws. And so for some folks— Which is a compelling argument. Right. This is a— They broke the law, they got here, and they got exactly what they wanted. Why shouldn't I go do the same thing? Exactly. So that common ground is harder to get to because these filters come into play, and then people's emotions step into it, and suddenly it's not about where the common ground is. It's about— you're just wrong. <laughs> and I'm not going to buy. I don't want to work with your side. I'm not going to agree with you. We're going to retreat back into our our echo chamber and our corner and uh, and never the twain shall meet. And that's honestly been the state of affairs for decades now with, in terms of immigration. Uh, and then there's also the argument of people, um, you know, nefarious actors bringing themselves and or chemical nuclear weapons across the, the open border. But if you can't stop if you can't stop illegal immigrants from coming through the border, you certainly can't stop uh, sophisticated terrorists from coming through. And that's a scary truth, but a truth nonetheless, and one which uh, many, many landlocked nations face. That's just a reality of life, unfortunately. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's see. Uh, okay, I think we figured out immigration. Um, how about the tax bill? The Republican tax bill. I love – let me ask you a bigger question about that for starters – Whenever a tax bill is proposed or passed, and the same goes for for Obamacare or whatever is replacing it now, there are so many people who are certain, here's all the reasons why it is the panacea that we need for all of our problems. Uh, And if it's not, it's only because this is as much as we could get from the other side. Or here's why these evil sons of bitches um, so uh, bald-facedly just took a dump on all of America. And there and and I would like to believe that and I'm not optimistic about this based on what we just talked about with economists in the the last topic that there would be some way of looking at a comprehensive tax bill and go regardless of what the sides are saying this is 
probably good or this is probably bad. Do you feel like at least in regard to the corporate tax that there is an an objective truth about whether or not that is the right thing for America, regardless of what one one side or another might like to hear? Well, the the tax bill had so many elements in it. There are some elements that both sides had been lobbying for for a while. For instance, the number of write-offs available in the tax code, the tax code being this monstrosity of paperwork that the reason why regular folks who don't have a lot of money need an accountant or some tax preparer to deal with all their stuff because they can't figure this out. It's too complicated, too many areas for write-off. So it makes sense, and both sides agree, why don't we make this a little bit thinner? Maybe have fewer write-offs, but hey, the tax code is a little bit simpler. Why can we get to the point where maybe we don't need H&R Block in our lives, where we can just do it ourselves? Raise the standard deduction. Yeah, yeah, eliminate write-offs or raise the standard deduction. It seems simple enough. That part seemed universally popular. But well, the, good. I'm glad <laughs> to hear that. <laughs> right. right. Uh, but the, the reason why it wasn't universally popular <laughs> is because of where they decided to make those cuts, right? Yeah. Where Which part of the tax code got the whack and which parts didn't. And so that's where it, the... There's economic arguments and then there's moral arguments. And there's, I guess that would mean your left brain or your right brain. You're talking logic or you're talking emotion. And and both of those things are right. And both of those uh, sides have their own equations to get them to their uh, what they consider the, the right conclusions. So when you look at corporate taxation in this country, yes, our corporate tax rate was one of the highest in the world. That is a true statement. Percentage-wise, on paper, you look at the number, it was in the high 30 percentiles, and you think, wow, compared to other countries, that's that's really high. Give me a, a figure for another country, generally speaking. Where are we relative to the world? Where we're U.S. was 39% for corporate taxation, and many European countries were mid-30s. Many Asian countries were in the 20s. Some countries are in the teens. Okay. So the U.S. was, there's maybe one or two countries that were higher. So, if, But if you use Europe as a comp, we're bigger, but not uh, orders of magnitude bigger. Correct. It's not like they're at 10% or anything like that. But what about everybody says, yeah, but this corporation paid $0 in taxes, and Warren Buffett paid less taxes than his secretary. Exactly. So when you look at what's called the the statutory tax rate, what it says on paper, and then there's the effective tax rate, what do they actually pay? Mm-hmm. And there's a huge gap. Where right. are we in effective, uh, if, if that can even be measured relative to other countries in the world? Do you know? I don't blame you if you don't. I don't know. I wish I, I should, but I don't. Yeah. Uh, so the what it said on paper seems like it doesn't really matter that much. It depends what they're actually paying. Like how much of the U.S. economy is being powered by the revenue we get from tax on businesses, right? That's a, that's a significant uh, figure to look at. And how is it affecting unemployment rate? If we are talking about what matters most in our economy, that people are gainfully employed, they have good jobs, is lowering the corporate tax rate going to produce more good jobs or produce fewer good jobs? Right. Is it going to make rich people richer or is it going to help the people that our economy needs to help? So when you look throughout history, uh, the, the unemployment rate was lowest at our country at the time where our tax rate was also its highest. <laughs> and it seems... When you look at that stat, you think, oh, having a low tax rate is not really going to help our unemployment. Now, is that like the 20s that they had this ludicrously? It was like 90% or something? This was from 1951 to 1969. Mm -hmm. We had a top marginal corporate tax rate of 
between 42 and 50%. Okay. I'm thinking of the personal taxes, which used to be stratospheric, right? Okay. Yeah. Business tax is what we're talking about. Right. Okay. Yeah. They peaked at 52.8%. I mean, can you imagine if your business and half your taxes are going or half your income is going towards taxes? That was at the high point. Unemployment rate at that time also happened to be between 33 and 3.5%. A lot of other factors at that point, though, you're talking about the post-World War II boom. Europe is in shambles and we're coming into our own at just the right time with the whole baby. Well, the baby boom isn't working yet, but everything's going right for America. We have no natural, I mean, Canada's not going to invade us. We have everything going for us. It's what makes this debate so difficult. There's so many other factors. We can't just isolate tax and say, look, see, there's your proof. People do that all the time, but (laughs) I think if you nuance it, you see that it gets far more complicated. So I understand, like on paper, it looks like the U.S. tax rate is is ridiculously high, and boy, we ought to do something about it. When you look at effective tax rate and realize companies like General Electric, Exxon, these companies in some cases are not only not paying taxes, but they're getting rebates, <laughs> uh, so they pay, they get paid, right? And so, uh, do we need an incentive? Uh, do we need to reform our tax court to help those companies, well, or are we doing it so that we can help regular people? You know the get jobs. And and is it doing that? So the moral argument, of course, being that, you know, businesses are, small business is the driver of the U.S. economic engine. uh, And that by having high tax rates, we are burdening those businesses. They can't make smart decisions. They can't hire. They can't make big investments. And we are hampering them from doing what we want them to do. Uh, So let's get out of their way and let business do what business ought to be doing providing jobs to people, keeping our economic engine humming. So morally, theoretically, yeah, that sounds pretty good, right? And that is a a philosophy. The other side of the philosophy is that, wait a minute, these businesses are not investing in people because they are good-natured and think, boy, aren't my workers swell, I would like to give them tons of money. Yeah. They are doing it because they want to pay their workers as little as possible in order to keep as much of the profit for themselves and their shareholders. They'll and replace them with robots the second they can. Their right. employees are necessary evils. <laughs> That's the other side of it, yeah. right? And so we need to have regulations in place to ensure that we're protecting people and preventing them from being steamrolled by businesses who have far more resources and power than they do. So that's what it comes down to. This is a philosophy. There's economic arguments that we can talk about for weeks, and then there's the the philosophies. So this tax bill was difficult to push through, right? We needed both houses, uh, legislative bodies at the federal level, and a president all behind it in order to get this to go through. And, and then just it, and then just barely took what three tries? Took I three think, tries, yeah. and you know it's it makes an assumption about the growth that it's going to produce. And that assumption being that our U.S. economic growth rate is going to exceed three and a half percent GDP uh, year over year growth. And it's a it's a big assumption. Uh, We hope it's true, of course, you know, (laughs) but uh, we haven't been there for a while and I'm not sure that we will get there. And we'll see if we're going to end up talking about what an awful thing the Republicans have done or when people look at their individual checks that they get from their employers and say, oh, it's a little bit higher than it used to be. Thank you for that great tax bill because they did lower the, the rates for for people on their checks. So it's a tough, tough issue. It's really wonky. Out of our 55 topics, corporate tax rate is honestly one of the least popular. It's something that's harder for people to wrap their heads around. Mm-hmm. And so people want to focus on, on other kinds of issues like immigration. Uh, but obviously, it's hugely, hugely important. I think it's also, just in general, it's hard for people to understand that very often. And it's like people know this in their personal lives, but they don't somehow 
transfer it to when they think about the larger world that things that sound right that ought to make sense don't actually work in like what we ought to be doing in in my opinion is I don't care if the corporate tax rate is 5% or 95% as long as you can demonstrate that that benefits the common wheel the most but everybody just goes well that sounds high to me you know how come I've got to do this when GE's got to do that well guess what you are a person and GE is a multinational corporation you are not the same thing that is akin to saying you know how come I need to eat food and that shrub doesn't like you're just not the same thing you're not comparable I know it's fun to I mean I understand people like to look at things in an anecdotal sense but it leads people to um really preposterous conclusions and not even preposterous so much it's just really really ill-informed absolutely and yet that's an easy way to think and mm-hmm. sometimes people will they won't engage in the conversation because they don't have an informed view of it yeah. or they will take an extreme position that they can get reinforced by whatever media outlet they happen to subscribe to yeah. and that's the end of the conversation and then what we're doing now like really deliberating these issues that is it's rare and yet that's what we need. We need, yeah. we need that. Or this, how are we going to progress as a nation? How are we going to solve our problems if we can't even talk about them? My honest take on the Republican bill that they're all happy and holding up a big check or something, whatever they're doing, it looked like somebody won the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes, is I just go, okay, let's see. Frankly, I'm kind of cool with you guys having, it's very similar to what I thought about uh, Obamacare when it passed. And I know that both sides will always say if it doesn't work, well, we only got through a watered down version of it. Boy, you should have seen if we'd really got the thing through. So we'll never actually get answers to these things. But I know that there are tons and tons of very reasonable um, right leaning people who like swear up and down about what we need for taxes. And I, okay, well, cool. Let's see. Because I don't think you even know. I think this is just you're pretty sure this is this is your plan. Let's give your plan a whirl. Who the hell knows? In all likelihood, it probably won't hit me where it hurts all that much anyway. I know that that one lady that Paul Ryan talked to is going to be able to go to Walmart twice a week now or something. But <laughs> good, 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 good for her. her. Good for her. <laughs> and uh, we only have a couple of minutes left, so let's just try to figure out climate change once and for all. Um, this is... Uh, from what I, It seems to me the most device, demonstrably the most divisive issue because... 75% or so of Democratic-leaning people um, think it's a critical issue and it's man-made and it's ruining the world, and like 25% of Republicans agree. So that is a chasm between um, – and I think both sides will vote on the basis of – if somebody was running for, I'm going to be the guy who outlaws you know, Exxon, that's going to be – people are going to vote for or against that guy or that lady on the basis of this. This is – you know, people, they're uh, – like you say, the, the corporate tax rate, people have opinions, but they won't necessarily get out of their house and go vote for it. I feel like the climate has become something people will vote on the basis of. So does ProCon get into figuring out whether or not there are compelling scientific arguments against the belief that climate change is man-made? We do. We present some of those arguments for – the scientists who say that climate change is not primarily caused by humans, there's very few scientists who actually think humans have nothing to do with this. Okay. Uh, but whether or not we are the primary drivers of it, that is a little more contentious. I won't say it's totally contentious because in the scientific community, the consensus is pretty clear. Most scientists think climate change is caused primarily by humans. End of story, right? Now, they, that doesn't mean that there aren't 
the scientists who disagree. And that doesn't mean that there are like 10 or 20 of them. There are thousands of them who say, well, but wait a minute, you have to consider this and that other factors. And for a lot of those scientists, they feel that they are kind of drummed out or bullied out of their opinions uh, and that those voices of dissent are really squashed by people who don't want to hear it and think, you're a complete idiot scientist. What are you talking about? Get out of here. We don't want you at our university anymore. They, we are... We believe that science, that climate change is primarily caused by humans, and if you don't agree with that, well, then see you later. Okay, so they're talking about being poo-pooed by people within the scientific or academic community, not just Correct. yahoos. Correct. But yeah. you know what's happening is that we find that the conversation around this topic is very similar. We get so many emails from people who, like most Democrats, think Climate change is absolutely caused by human beings. It is a catastrophe waiting to happen. It's a catastrophe that is happening, and we need to stop this immediately. And why are you even discussing this? This is a part of the problem. And the other folks who are, you know, 40-plus percent of the registered Republicans who are like, oh, thank goodness, you're looking at both sides. I really want to understand this debate without being bullied. I want to understand what the pros and the cons are so I can have an informed opinion. One of the things that heartens me is when we surveyed our audience and asked, how many of you changed your mind on an issue based on what you read? I thought, man, if we break 5%, I'm going to high-five everybody in this room. We got to 36%. 36% of people changing their mind on an issue based on information. On this particular issue? On all across okay, our issues. Okay, okay. I thought, that's a, you can't do that with a weapon, and here we are doing it with information. So it gives me hope that people can come to this topic, they feel safe here, that they can for themselves look and evaluate these sides without feeling bullied, without feeling yelled at, and be in that space where they can really deliberate for themselves and then walk away with their own conclusions. Do you feel like that's happened to you personally? It's happened to me personally on almost all of our topics. I will come in there with a, an opinion on one side or the other, and then I will either end up completely confused because I thought, oh man, this is way more complicated than I recognized, or end up flipping my my own point of view. Uh, it it works. I mean, at the end of the day, teachers have been using this method forever, uh, that people have been using it in their lives forever. All it really is, is exposure. We expose ourselves to different points of view, and in this case, artfully and respectfully, different points of view, and then recognize, wow, those people aren't crazy. They just got to their conclusion in a different way. In a lot of ways, that's really empowering. and gives me hope that if that's what it is, if I just need to understand my neighbor so that I can relate to that person better and see where they're coming from, I don't think my neighbor's an evil person, you know? And no, almost nobody thinks they're evils, their, their neighbor's an evil person. That's one of the worst things is this disembodied voice in the comment section on doesn't matter what website is so easy to get angry at. And if that guy's your next door neighbor, you're like, yeah, he's a little off. Right. Uh, one last very quick yes or no question. In your personal experience, looking at all the issues, do you feel like, and you don't need to say which one, one party's side tends to make more logical sense or hold more water than the other party's side? I, I don't. Okay, no, good. I don't, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I don't think about it that way, honestly. they Both sides have such good points, and it's just a matter of having those honest conversations around these issues getting politics out of it and focusing on issues. It's not about news cycle. This is not about 24-7 inundation of nonsense. Let's just sit down. Let's figure this stuff out for ourselves. And if we can't sit down, then you sit down as a person and read both sides for yourself. It'll only take a few minutes. 
And everybody can do that at ProCon.org. Also follow you on social media. It's good to spend some time, actually. Make a couple you know, make a couple minutes, make a couple hours and go through the stuff. And you might be surprised what you come up with. I, I, I certainly was. Thank you so much for coming by. A pleasure. Thank you. 